Welcome to Camera Shake Podcast, episode 133, the podcast where we talk about photography, videography, and anything that's got anything to do with any of that, with me, Kirsten Lutz, and another super special guest on today's show. But before I tell you who it is, let me just give you a quick preview of what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, this episode is jam, jam, jam-packed with awesome information. Uh, it's, it really is incredible. We're talking about anything from um, learning how to light, um, utilizing, you know, umbrellas. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, color profiles and how to calibrate your monitor and uh, how to create a mobile workflow with iPads and lots of other good stuff. And of course, as always with this particular guest, there's a good dose of guitar thrown in as well. But if you want to find out who it is, well, just right after this. Welcome to this week's episode of the Camera Shake Podcast. And in today's episode, our special guest is none other than the fashion and celebrity photographer, lighting guru, educator, and master of the electric guitar. Give it up for Mr. Frank Dohoff. Frank, man, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you so very much for that introduction, man. Thank you. <laughs> cool. It's actually the second uh, introduction because I literally, this is the second time we're doing the intro bit because I forgot to press the record button. Don't yes, tell you do. people that. You, you tell them your successes. You don't tell them your failures because then... People think you're human, and that's not oh, possible, of course. I, I think I think it just uh, makes us more endearing. <laughs> that's true, too. <laughs> that's the thing. So we've just been chatting away. Um, actually, also, you know, before the show, we've been talking about guitars, because that's, yeah. of course, something we have majorly in common. And uh, for anybody who's been listening to the Camera Shake podcast, um, you know, over, over the past year or so, you'll know that the music kind of creeps into it. Um, every now and again there are lots of parallels between music and photography um and you know something really interesting we've been talking about just now is uh, the the benefits of teaching photography and the the impact that it has on you and your own skill as a photographer yeah i, I think when you start teaching photography there's one thing that you don't realize maybe is let me put it this way there are two ways of teaching you can teach your ways to a student and i think that's a great way of teaching if you're a master photographer or a master guitar player but i think in the creative business you can't really do it because let's be honest if i give you a guitar and i play the guitar and we play through exactly the same amp with exactly the same settings you still don't sound like me and i don't sound like you I know there's this story about Brian May meeting Ingwie Monstein, and I don't know if it's really true or there were other guitar players involved, but it was like a demo show, right? And the story goes that Ingwie Monstein picks up Brian May's guitar and played and sounded exactly like Ingwie Monstein. Uh, Brian May picked up Ingwie's guitar and he sounded exactly like Brian May. The thing is, it's in the fingers and it's in the whole way that you experience something. Uh, one of the breakthrough albums from Steve Vai is, of course, Passion and Warfare. Just listen to For the Love of God on that on that number. You, you can literally hear there's something weird going on with that song. It's different from all the other ones. So I think as a teacher in a creative business, it's more about what went on in your mind to do this, not the techniques. Of course, you have to master the techniques. Also with lighting, of course, you have to know what lighting does. Angle of incidence is angle of reflection, that kind of stuff, the inverse square law. But as soon as you know that, don't work from recipes try to understand what lighting does. Because if you work from uh, a recipe, and for example, you have softbox next to your model, you have your model and your backdrop, and you go like, oh, there's a little bit too much light hitting the backdrop. If you work from a recipe, 
you can't solve that issue because very simple, you followed the recipe and the recipe was for light on the backdrop. So now you go into your book and you find something what you like, and maybe you don't find something that you like. Well, if you know how it works, there are, diff there are several solutions. One, you can move the model away from the backdrop with the lighting, inverse square law, so the light doesn't hit the backdrop. What you can also do if you don't have that space, is just hold your finger on the softbox or umbrella and just tilt it very, very slightly by using the sides of the light, light uh, less light is hitting the backdrop, your model is getting a little bit less light, but a softer quality of light. So in essence, you're in total control. But if you follow those recipes, it doesn't work. So I think that link between what we talked about before you press record, be between being a very creative person and creating something with a mindset instead of just using scales, that's also the same thing for photography. You can literally see in somebody's portfolio if he's just running scales or if he's creating a song. Because let's be honest, photography, music, painting, we all start with nothing and only our imagination makes an interesting image. If you don't have that imagination, you're just running scales and that can sound interesting in the 80s, but not anymore. Or you make a picture with perfect lighting, perfect model, but there's just nothing, nothing going on. And it can be interesting, but not for 10 pages after each other. You have to tell something, a story. And I think that's very important to do. And I think that's why you see a lot of photographers playing instruments because they are already those creative people. Scales are actually a really good example because, um, you know, teaching scales is, is one of those things, you know, you, a scale for all of those who are non-musicians, non all the listeners and viewers who are non-musicians, a scale is basically an array, a sequence of notes that you bundle together to create a certain effect for, you know, all the intents and purposes. But you can you can teach a scale, you can teach all the notes, and somebody can learn how to play that scale um, with all the notes in the right order. But that's that's very very far removed from actually making music with that scale. Yeah. Because the, you know once you've learned the scale on the guitar or on the piano, that's when the work really starts. I always when I when I was younger I taught guitar, so I think only for four or five years I was actually as a guitar player, just local local kids. And I still remember at that time you had uh, Dream Theater, Metallica, of course, with the Black Album. You had um, Ingrid Monstein, Jason Becker, Steve Vai, Joe Satriani. They were all up and coming and they were all shredders. And the thing was before, of course, you had bands like Queen and Def Leppard who already played with different emotions. But there were always those bands, you know, that, oh, that's Queen. Mostly was based on blues. So five notes per scale. Very simple, one position on the gate system, so you always knew where you were. Very, very simple, and it always worked. Whatever note you hit, it was always right. And I remember when I taught that there were two different kinds of students. There were students that came in and said, hey, I want to do this song from Metallica, and uh, I don't know what it is. So I listened to it and said, okay, that's Mixolydian. And now for people that don't know anything about music, don't stop. I'm going to explain that in a second. It's Mixolydian, okay. Then they listened to something from Vi. Oh, that's Lydian. They listen to something from Cetriani. Okay, this is also Lydian, but with a lowered, uh, like harmonic. And they go like, oh my God, I don't know what it is. Did you say demonic? No, harmonic. Oh, okay. I don't know. And now you had this weird thing. And I see the same thing with photography. You had certain people that literally just pushed me to learn them a Mixolydian scale with all the chords connected. And you had that group that literally listened to me and said, I want to learn this. And I said, okay. We're not going to learn it this week. We're going to learn it in two weeks. This week, you're going to learn the C major scale, but you have to learn the scale over the whole neck. 
And in guitar playing, that's really, really simple because it's six strings and it's the same distance. So it repeats itself over and over. At one point, you just visualize it and you just see all the notes lighting up. So it's very simple. So the first week they learned all the scales. The second week, I learned them all the triads and triads are chords, chords with three notes. You can play them over the whole scale. They're called inversions. And at that point, they learned a scale that you never use in modern music, C major scale. It's yeah, you can use it, but not a lot. Another thing that you use a lot in metal is A minor. Now, why A minor? Very simple, because it's the C major scale with exactly the same chords, but you start on the A. And now a lot of the students got it, because Mixolydian is the same C major scale, but you start on another note. So you have Aeolian, Dorian, Fritian, Lydian, Mixolydian, Aeolian, Locris, and Mixolydian, uh, I believe in that order. I don't know exactly at the moment. They're called the church modes. Now, that those are seven different scales with harmonic variants. So you have 14 different scales. What do you think is faster? Learning somebody 14 different scales or learning them one scale with one addition and just say, okay, you know the scale, you got it on your fingers. Don't start with that finger. Start with that, wrong example. Start with that finger or that finger. You found out that if you look at six months, not of course after a month, but if you look at six months, the guys that learned the scale first were way faster after about two or three months. The guys that learned the scales per scale were very fast at the beginning, like literally really fast. But then after two or three months, it just stopped. And you know why? After two or three months, you come into the creative parts. It's the same with lighting for photography. And as soon as you come in the creative part and you're stuck in only remembering those chords patterns and those patterns from those scales, you are not able to step out. While all the people that know the connections, they also know, but hey, wait a minute, this note is not within the scale, but it would fit perfectly with that chord. So if I'm hitting that F major seven chord, I'm going to enhance that one note of that F major chord. So the first three months, you saw a difference between the guys did it the, the original way, so learning only one scale. They were a little bit slower. But if you look at six months, those guys were way ahead. And I see the same thing with photography. If I teach in my workshop somebody to understand lighting and to know that light always behaves the same. The center is very bright and very harsh. The more you get to the outsides, the light gets softer and also less in output. If you understand that, why would you always light your model with the center of the light of softbox? You lose so much quality of light. Just angle it away. Use it as a feathering technique. Absolutely. And I think as soon as you start getting that, then it's way easier to go into that creative part. And I'm the kind of guy that always wants to know how stuff works. So I started out as actually literally wanted to know every scale in photography. So I started with recipe books, started to look at those recipes, starting to recreate them. And at one point, I just hit my head against the wall. I couldn't get it done in one or two images. I was just going like, I don't get it. I do exactly the same as in the book. It's exactly the same setup. I just can't figure it out. And at that point, I just put the book in the bookcase and I would I just started doing more creative stuff. A few years later, I looked at the same book and you know the weird part is, I opened up the book and immediately went like, oh, the lighting diagram is wrong in that one. The lighting diagram should be like, and I was going like, wait a minute, that's, that's a totally different approach because now I'm not looking at the diagram trying to recreate the image. I'm actually looking at the image trying to recreate the diagram. That's such a huge difference in approach. Like if you are able to look at a shot 
and analyze the lighting setup instead of seeing the lighting setup and analyzing the shot. Dude, that's... Literally, you can do almost anything. If you have the gear and the proper situations and you have it in your mind, you, you can create it. Of and course, often, limitations. Exactly. And often, you know, it's the simplicity of the thought process um, that uh, that allows you to... Um, to have an easier understanding of, of something that could otherwise be a really complicated concept. It's a yeah. good example for that. And again, I'm, just, I'm sort of, um, talking about guitar here for a second again. Uh, I remember um, a lesson with Joe Pass. This was like back in the 90s. And um, wh one of the things he was he was teaching was, was how to make a simple scale sound a lot more complicated than it actually is. And it kind of started out with a simple minor pentatonic scale, which all the guitar players out here, that's probably the first scale you'll ever learn. It's the simplest scales because it was called the box shape. Super easy. But one of the things he did was like, he was like, well, okay, let's let's pick this note. This is a note that's not part of the scale. So in theory, this shouldn't work. Now, I want you to make this work. And he gave an example of how dropping in this random note would, he could make that sound really cool. And, uh, and so... The learning process was like, okay, well, here we have our basic scale, which we'll call a skeleton, but there are all sorts of other notes that seemingly are not part of it that we can throw in, and there will be a way to make that work over whatever chord. It might be a particular chord that we're playing over, or it might be a particular line that we're playing, and these notes lead into a note that's part of the scale and whatever. And you can learn all of the technical terms for that. You might be changing you know, into a different scale that has a different name or, you, you know, there could be another reason for why the tension that you're creating with this note uh, has an effect and then it creates release to another scale tone or whatever it is. I mean, that you could look at this from a really technical, really complicated point of view. Or just you feel could, it. Yeah, or you could just feel it. And it was incredible. And then the examples that he gave were like, you know, I was at the time I was looking at him and saying, I have no idea what he's playing. Like, he seems to be playing outside the patios and like yeah. he seems to be switching and swapping from this mode to another no a mode and and actually his thought process was so simple it was like i'm just playing the pentatonic scale that's all i'm doing with blues in notes my, and passing notes yeah my, in my head it's just that there's another thing he did which is super interesting um and it all had to do with chord progressions um in jazz a, there's a chord progression called a two five one super simple and um, he was playing all these complicated changes and throwing in chords and doing this and the other, and he was playing over these chords, and and it was modulating, so it was going from one key to another key to another key, and uh, what, as it turns out that the way he was thinking was actually super simple. He completely ignored the two, so one out of the three chords he completely ignored, and so he was just looking at it as a five and a one. That's it. So again, it's just a simplification of the process. Um, that just made something that was seemingly complicated appear really simple, if that makes sense. For me, I think the main thing that I got, what I didn't get in my youth, and I got it when I started playing again, is the so-called zone. And I found it out that I think when I was younger, I was very much into playing fast and shredding and arpeggios, and I never could do it, so I was always struggling. And I think after a lot of years, you get more mellow. And because I didn't play for almost 17 years, I started playing again like three years ago. I started from a totally different approach. Like I'm never going to get my speed back, although I'm now faster than I was when I started, but because I didn't practice it. And the thing is, and I think that also goes for photography again, is when I started with um, playing guitar, the only thing I had was this. 
And that's how you had to practice. It's called a metronome. So when you practice your scales, you're going like, and then faster and faster and faster. And then you started playing triplets, 16s, and that's how I built up speed. And then when you wanted to record something, I had this little four track recorder with a normal cassette tape, and you could only hear two tracks back. So the first track was drums. The second track was the keyboards. The third track, which I couldn't hear, was my rhythm guitar. And then I had to play a solo over something that I couldn't hear, but I just hanged it up on the um, on the keyboards. And then you create something where I listen now back and I go like, how the heck did I do that? Because it's insanely complicated for me to do it now. So how the heck did I do it when I only hear two tracks back? And I think when I look at now all the techniques that we have, like uh, I use Logic, and I see that in your backdrop, you're using Logic to uh, to record. You have something called an IE drummer. And you literally just tell the drummer, like, okay, I want some funky beats. And, uh, okay, this sounds nice what you're doing. And you just hold your uh, your mouse over something and you just, a little bit less complex. Oh, that looks real. Oh, that sounds nice. Maybe a little bit louder. Oh, let's get a little bit more hi-hat in. So you're using an artificial drummer. I have an artificial bassist. If I, if I don't want to play the bass myself, is... Um, Oh, sorry, that's chewy. Um, you have an artificial bass player, which you can also exactly tell what he has to play. So, okay, I want you to outline those chords with a stomping bass. Or no, I want to use your fingers. No, pluck the bass. And, I, of course, I can play keys. And so I just play some simple chords. I put the uh, artificial bass behind it and the artificial keyboards and everything put together. Sorry, the drums. And I start playing. And that's the difference between in the old days. If I would have had all those techniques in the old days, I would have progressed way faster. And you know the difference is, and we're going back to photography again. In the old days, I was working with recipes, the metronome, the metronome, the metronome, the metronome. That was the only thing you could do. Later on, if you had the money, you could buy a Kawai session trainer. I don't know if you know those. I remember it well. Yeah, oh, of course. <laughs> they sounded like crap, but you had a whole band in a box. It was like... Uh -huh. I know my guitar teacher had one and I was just, I was, I went to the guitars at that point. I already taught myself, but I didn't tell my guitar teacher for the very simple reason. He was a little bit of a jerk and he had a Kawaii session trainer. And I always looked forward to that five minutes in my lesson where I could play against him on the Kawaii session trainer and always try to beat him on speed. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous if you look back at it because one note is more powerful. But anyway, if I would have had all those techniques. When I was younger, you are way more triggered to do the creative part. That's, I think, why people like Steve Vai, who can play all the instruments themselves and have a very good composer mind, are progressing way faster. And when you look at the, the guitar players from now, look at guys like Polyphia, for example, like Tim Henson. He's doing stuff on the guitar, which is incredibly technical. But when you look at it, it's also incredibly simple what he does. It's only, it's incredibly difficult to play. And when I saw an interview with Tim, he actually told people like, yeah, what we do is we first program it in the computer and then we try to play it on guitar. And that's why he has these really weird jumps. Because if you look at what they're playing, it's very, it's just basic stuff. But try to play it. It's impossible. I'm not even going to try it because it's so technical. But that's somebody who totally understands the recipes and then goes running with it and creates it totally in a creative part. And if you have that combination, and you don't see that a lot, I think Vi Satriani, Brian May are those 
and I think also John Mayer, when you look at blues, how he's playing the blues, it's again, it's not a blues copy. He's creating new stuff within the blues. And I think that's that's the part where you have to go beyond those recipes and just start doing that creative part in your mind. And I think that's very, very difficult to do. When I first started in, um, well, not necessarily when I first started in photography, but when I started working with um, artificial lighting, you know, the, the first thing I had, because that was the only thing I could afford at the time, was a speed light and, um, and a pop-up softbox. You know, one of these square 20 bucks, you know, super simple softboxes. And I had that. Oh, and a, and a really cheap lighting stand. That was all I had. Um, but I learned a lot from just simplifying everything because that was all I could do. And then, of yeah. course, you know, <clears throat> the thing was like, oh, but if I wanted to shape the light a little bit, I, I got some black cardboard and I, you know, flacked off some bits of the softbox and I made a little grit myself. And I sort of learned one step at a time. So I learned how to, how to place the softbox and because I didn't have different size softbox and octoboxes and reflectors and all the rest of it, you know, I had to kind of make do with this one thing and like really learn everything that I could learn about how to use this one, one thing. Um, and then a little bit later on, I could afford to add other things to them. So I don't know, I bought a pop-up reflector and then all of a sudden, you know, I could do a lot of damage with that. Um, it, you know, it, it's, I think it's, to me, it was a is a great way of learning because I literally had to restrict myself to just this one thing. I had to learn everything there was to learn yeah. about this one thing, and I used that for a very very long time, years really, you know. Um, and I used, I mean, I've I've ran my whole headshot business on eventually on two speed lights for, for years, which is brilliant. You know, I started out with hot lights, literally hot lights. So nothing to do with photography or lighting, but Bouwlamp, we call them in the Netherlands. It's uh, Constriction lights. I know, yeah, yeah. And the right. reason I actually stopped using them is because I wanted to soften the light. And I literally realized like, okay, if I put something over those lights, I have a fire hazard, so I need something else. And that's when I started buying strobes. Because for the very simple reason, I was afraid of fire hazards because those hot lights, they get really hot. It was halogen lights and they you couldn't touch them. Even the poles get a little bit hot the more you get down, they were cooler. but those lights were really dangerous, in all honesty. If they fell over, you had a fire hazard. And they were not used for lighting. They were very, very ugly, very harsh, yellowish light, which, of course, when you shoot raw, you can correct it. But that's how I started. Light went everywhere, so you needed flags. But the flags couldn't be too close because, again, fire hazard. So that's when we started doing, um, uh, again, with uh, strokes. But, by the way, I did find out something recently which is amazing and literally blew my mind for years i don't know let me just out of the blue what is the worst light modifier you can have well i always used to think it was an umbrella bingo but... stop stop everybody thinks it's an umbrella you're absolutely right why it's well and again i used to think that i can't control the light with it it just goes everywhere yes and you know why um, well, just simply because it's because it just spills everywhere. That's just a lot of spill. Okay, so our company changed a little bit in 2022, and we got three new brands in. So we do IQ Wire now. So that's five and ten meter stator cables with boosters on board, where you get a more stable and faster connection. We do Click Pro backdrops, the professional backdrop for the studio, and we do Rogue. 
Now, Rogue is a brand where you, of course, know the flash benders, and they have this new magnetic system, which is awesome. We're going to very soon release a snoot. There's already a video online. You're going to love it. Now, Eric and John, I already know for 15 years or so. We, we even spent time at their house when we were visiting the States. They're great guys. The main thing about Rogue Expo Imaging is they listen to the photographers. So they got a new item in and they said, Frank, we have something and we know you're going to hate it, but can you please make a video? And because we're distributor for Rogue in the Benelux at the moment, of course we're going to make a video, even if it's something that I'm not going to use myself. So I said, okay, John, or, or Eric at that point, and said, what did you build? He said, <clears throat> we have an umbrella kit. <laughs> I just looked at that week and I was going like, well, okay, interesting. So what is different from your umbrella kit? He said, well, we have a black one and a white one. Okay, that's normal. The black one has a sleeve. Eh, that's normal. But they're made of fiberglass. And I was going like, Ooh, that's interesting because one of the main problems with umbrellas is you use them for maybe three or four months. You do one thing wrong and you can throw them away. Now, they're very cheap, right? They're 100 euros or 25 euros or whatever. I believe this kit is like 119 euros for a black one, a white one, a carrying case, a sleeve, and everything together. So it, you're talking about peanuts compared to a softbox. So I said, you know what, just I, I will make a video, sure. I'm not really interested in two umbrellas. <laughs> Dude, you know why we hate umbrellas? Because we started out with umbrellas and we didn't know crap about setting up your lighting. At this point, I have this 1 meter 20 softbox from Hansel, and I'm not going to say anything bad about Hansel. That softbox, dude, it's kick-ass. It's the best softbox I ever had. I'm not using it anymore. I'm using a one-meter umbrella. The reason is very simple. If you start out with photography, you start out with umbrellas because every single kit has an umbrella. And you're not able to control that lighting because the umbrella is a very, very complicated and very flexible beast. But if you don't know how to use it, it's terrible. So you start with the umbrella. You can't control your light because you know, don't know anything about feathering. You don't know anything about angles. Then you get a big softbox. You pay 800 euros for a softbox. So for the love of God, it should be better, right? And your wife is also going like, now you have that softbox. So you start learning a little bit more about that softbox. And by miracle, hey, now you control your lighting. So it has to be that umbrella, right? Now, it's like when I get my first guitar again at the time that I didn't play anything, and I play on it now, I play way better on that cheap guitar. And I probably go like, ooh, that's a great guitar. There's nothing wrong with that piece of junk, which I first labeled as a piece of junk. It's actually great. That's the trick with the umbrella. At this point, if you look at all my live streams and almost every video, that umbrella is there. I'm using it as a fill-in light. I hope you don't have any problems with the noise outside. I don't know what's going on. but that's So I use, I use it as a fill-in light. And I use it as a main light. And when I take the sleeve off, I use it as a beauty dish. It's all for the, the black one I use the most. That's 90 euros. And it replaces my beauty dish. It replaces my big softbox. It's all about knowing your technique and then using that creativity. And then an umbrella, of course, the softbox and a beauty dish, they, I still use it. It's, it's great stuff. But it's just insane that with a 90 euro accessory, with when you start out with photography, you go, it's the worst modifier ever. They just put it in. I always had the joke, it's for rain, nothing more. So in the Netherlands, an umbrella is great. But man, if you start doing it with the, with the knowledge you have now, I literally, those, uh, those umbrellas, they sell like hotcakes because people see what you can do with it. And even professional photographers go like, Frank, I see the video you're using an umbrella. Is that because it's commercially or because you really like it? I said, how many videos do you see me using the umbrella? Almost all. 
I said, if it's commercial, you will see me using it in two, maybe three. But that that's it. I will squeeze it in. But if you see me using it as a main light and not talking about it, I'm using it. And they go like, yeah, I see it every time. So they buy it. And then you get the responses back like, Frank, on location, it's so much easier. And that's the thing. Know your techniques, know how to use it, and then just forget about it and start working in the zone. And at that point, it doesn't really matter if it's an umbrella or a big softbox. Your eyes see something, close that off. Like with playing guitar, I don't know if you have the same thing like me. If I'm recording, I have my eyes open because I want to make sure that I don't hit any wrong notes. But when I'm just improvising, I close my eyes and somehow you always find the right notes because you are not playing anymore. And recently I started really noticing it that I was just playing something, I was tired and I just closed my eyes and the backing track is like 10 minutes. And at one point I just heard a commercial. I was going like, is there a commercial in the middle of the backing track? And I just looked at it, oh, I'm already playing for 10 minutes. And then I started thinking like, do I actually know what I'm playing? And I found out, I don't know if it's the same thing, I actually played it and in my mind, I was actually thinking about it after I played it. Like, what the heck did I just play? That sounded nice. If you get into that zone with photography or with your art, that's the part where you are totally disconnected between your brain and your imagination. And your imagination just does everything and your brain just makes sure that you follow the proper course. But there's no more interference between the brain. And I think that's what you have to do with photography. Know the theory behind it, then disconnect the theory and just leave it on the back burner. And then start to use your imagination and just make sure that the brain in the back just keeps telling you, I, I wouldn't do it like this, do it like that. And that will be subconscious. And then later on, you go like, why the heck did I do that? Oh, because. And I think at that point, I, I think that's the part where you really start to becoming a professional photographer that also is able to tell a story instead of just making a great headshot or so creating my, a great song or painting. Exactly. So my teacher always used to say, you know, you learn, you want to learn all the stuff, the music theory, all the scales, everything that you need. And then you want to forget, forget everything and then just yep. start playing. And it's, it's very similar. Um, I mean, it's funny that, you know, we're talking about umbrellas because I, I recently started using uh, my umbrellas much, much more often. In fact, the key light that's lighting me right now is it's just uh, a white shoot-through umbrella with an LED panel behind it. Just mainly, you know, I was, I was thinking about how I set this setup up and I thought, oh, okay, I need a video light, like an aperture light or something like that. And I need, I need a softbox like a light dome. And then I was thinking, well, wait a minute. That's like, we're talking about a thousand pounds here, you know? There you go. And and, and, then I th and then I thought, you know, well, actually, you know what? I don't need any of that because I already have umbrellas and already have LED panels. Yes. This should work. And it works perfectly. Absolutely no problem. It's actually I much think, easier to set up as well. That's the other thing. Yes. I, I, and I think in all honesty that Rogue, without knowing it, has started a revolution with umbrellas because the, the only thing that I didn't like about umbrellas and I hated literally with passion was that they broke down so easily. Like every time on location, I lost at least one of them. So at, at one point she just stopped using it. And now with, with fiberglass, they're lighter. You don't have that problem. And of course, they can break down. There's always somebody that can demolish it. But let's be honest. Let, let's put it this way. They will last five times as long as a normal umbrella. And when you break it down, you're talking about 25 euros or 90 euros, depending on the big one or the smaller one. That's nothing compared to a softbox. And then when you look at it, it's... And you know the trick about an umbrella, what a lot of people don't realize? Every softbox needs an inner baffle for the very simple reason. This is a stroke. This is the inner baffle. This is the front baffle. 
you're still using a very, very tiny uh, uh, strobe, uh, sorry, um, light source. By hitting the first bezel, you're creating a large soft box, but it's still with a very hard middle. Then the front diffuser makes everything wider again. What people don't realize is that an umbrella doesn't do this. An umbrella is a reflective light source. So instead of shooting through, you can still do that with an umbrella. How I use it is shooting as a reflector. So you're hitting the reflector. At that point, you have a way bigger light source. And then by using the front sleeve, you have a beautiful light source that literally is softer on the sides, but not in output. And that's the trick about the umbrella. With a softbox, you were talking about 5.6, 4, 2.8. With an umbrella, you're talking about 5.6, almost 5.6, maybe 5.0. So you have way less light of fall. So when you want to feather your lighting, you have to turn it more. But think about this. If this does a lot, you don't have a lot of flexibility. But if this does the same amount, look at all the spaces you can in between. And you can do it this way, you can do it that way. Dude, the umbrella, as soon as you start using it with the techniques and the, the knowledge we have now, I dare to say it's one of the most challenging, but also one of the most flexible modifiers. And I hope that by guys like you and guys like me, and of course, Roke now listening to the photographers and making them fiberglass, we can start a revolution of people saving a lot of money by just using those. And of course, I'm still using the strip lights from hand, so I love them. The beauty of this I still use because it's a unique device. But if I'm on location, I don't bring that stuff anymore. I just bring two umbrellas and I bring one strip light because we want to be able to do this. And by the way, with Rogue, I don't know if you, um, if I can say this. I, I'm, I'm going to say it's very, very low key. We're going to make a modifier which has never been seen on an umbrella before. And we're working on it now and I hope that we can finish it off. When you see it, we can literally steer the light of an umbrella way more than with a softbox. So let's hope that that uh, finds its way uh, out of the beta. Oh, but, uh, that, that looks interesting. I, I've always, you know, I've always, I've always loved um, Rogue because I've been since you know I started with with speed lights. Uh, I used a lot of their um, like flash benders, for example. I have them in several sizes, and uh, they also do like a grid type of thing, which like velcros around the um, around the head of the speed light, and you know you can put different filters in stuff, which, which I've always found very did, useful. So, did you ever try out the white uh, grids? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. You know that that actually was my idea. Oh, was it really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Awesome. Uh, well, I, 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 by the way, I don't remember that correctly. I know the Flashbender XL, the soft silver, that was absolutely my idea. And the Velcro on both sides was my idea because I always lost the um, the white diffuser. So I said, why not able to put the white diffuser on the back? But there was no Velcro on the back. And because there's now Velcro on the back, you can also bend your Flashbender into a snoot. So by adding the Velcro on both sides, they actually opened up way more possibilities. And that's why they started doing the Flashbender XL3 with my signature on it, because I had a lot of input on that one. But I always say, like, I can have a lot of inputs. It's you guys that actually create the product. So I'm very honored with my signature on it, but it's still your product. You're just listening to the complaints that your customers have. It's actually insane that only companies like Rogue, uh, BenQ, for example, they listen to the clients. Yeah, this you know, I That's mean, weird. coming back to um, coming back to umbrellas, you know, another another really useful feature, um, and this again, so this only really occurred to me in the last six months, I guess, maybe in the last year, maybe since since the end of the pandemic, I guess, since travel has been, you know, has become possible again. 
Um, I've, I've, you know, that's really one of the major reasons I've started using umbrellas a lot more is because they're so easy, so much easier to travel with. And they, um, you can use them on strobes, on speed lights. You can use them on hot lights. You can use them on LEDs. There is no different modifiers. You don't have to buy a converter ring. You don't have to fiddle around. You just go on location. What light do you have? Okay, this, bloop, bloop, put yeah. it in, done. And for me, you know, I went to Germany over the summer um, and I needed to take some kit because I was going to uh, create some portraits. Um, and the, the logical thing was was actually just to take an umbrella because it packed really lightly in my suitcase. I didn't have to, you know, pay for any additional luggage or anything like that. It was it was super easy. I literally took one umbrella with with a sleeve that turned it into, you know, a silver and a black umbrella, depending on how you put it on. Yeah. Um, it was super easy, super practical. Um, it actually gave me more flexibility on set than a softbox would have done. You know, because because you can use it as a shoot through and you can use it as yeah. a reflective umbrella. Um, and, then, uh, and, you know, and the original idea that I had for this particular shoot, um, I had to actually change my approach to the umbrella because because I had to deal with some uh, reflective surfaces in the background and using the uh, the umbrella as a shoot through, which was my original idea, didn't work out because I get too much reflection on the on the on the background. It was in a kitchen and, you know, kitchen cupboard surfaces uh, sometimes that's super highly reflective, and it's just there was no way. Um, I mean, you know, yeah, you can go, you can go into Photoshop and spend three hours retouching yeah, or all just that. Just turn the umbrella around to make oh, it omnidirectional light source <laughs> yes. done. Exactly, exactly. And cool, the other right? thing, absolutely, yeah. And the the other thing is, um, as some of the listeners will know by now, I've I recently um, <laughs> I I bought a Vespa over the summer, um, mainly because driving into London is is such an expensive thing these these days because you have to pay congestion charge and um, ultra low emission zone charge and all the rest of it. Parking for diesel cars like twice as expensive as it is for normal cars and all the rest of it. So, so I kind of thought, you know, if I if I buy a Vespa, I can literally Vespa it into town um, and park for free in most places and not have to pay any of those. But it also means that I have to I have to scale down my kit so it fits in on in or on my backpack and under the seat of the oh. Vespa. So I think for a lot of people, it's not only about that umbrella, just look at it and just close your eyes and work with it and then just judge. And in the end, we can only spend our money once, right? So what would be like your top tips for, for people who um, want to sort of color calibrate their own monitors? What, like what, would they, what should they do? The, the first thing you have to realize is that a lot of people say, why should I calibrate my monitor if my client doesn't have a calibrated monitor? And some people will just go like, yeah, you're right. Now, think about this. If you're colorblind and you see green as red and you walk outside, you see green as red, right? And for you, that's normal. If I say, hey, that's green, you go, ah, that's red. So you're always used to seeing green as red. Now, if you're in front of a traffic light, you don't make any mistakes because in your mind, green is red, right? And you know that the top one means drive. The bottom one looks exactly the same to you, but you know that's stop because it's a little bit darker. So you don't even see it as I don't see green. No, it, it, it's green, right? That's green because everybody told me it's green. Now think about this. If you do the same thing for your monitor and you have a monitor that's 10% too blue, all the images that are color corrected look right on your monitor. It's 10% too blue, but it looks right because you're used to that image. If you as a photographer don't calibrate, and for example, your monitor is also 10% too blue, you take out that 10% too blue. In essence, and this is the funny part, in essence, on the client's monitor, the image should look okay because you take out 10% too much blue 
ES 10% too much blue. So by taking it out, you end up at zero. It's a very simple explanation, of course. So that image looks right. Still, the customer looks at that image and goes like, hmm, it's too warm. And why? Because he's used to too much blue. You can never, ever tell a client, you have to calibrate your monitor to look at my images. Because as soon as your client calibrates and then looks at your images, you go like, it's all off. It looks weird because he's used to that color. So we as creators are actually forced to do calibrations, although people don't use calibrated displays. Because if we don't calibrate, our images look different from our competition. Okay, so now the main tips. It depends on what you work for. Nowadays, we don't really work for print anymore. So the whole DPI, uh, I, I recently saw that somewhere that somebody said, how important is DPI? DPI is totally not important anymore. It's about the pixels. Unless you are printing and you want to make sure that you deliver high enough resolution for an A2 print, just ask the printer like, hey, what's your resolution? 72 DPI. Just type in 72 DPI with right. centimeters. If that comes out higher, you're fine. If that comes out lower, do some upscaling or whatever, or take a new shot. So DPIs are dots per inch for print. If we look at nowadays, for example, a lot of the work that I do ends up on big billboards for VB Suryadi. So at that point, we work with DPIs. But 90% of what we do end up on digital billboards, digital advertising online. So I recently heard somebody said, oh, for Instagram, 24 megapixels is more than enough. You don't know what you're talking about. For Instagram, 10 megapixels is overkill. So listen to your own clients. And in my opinion, if you're a studio photographer, I would aim at something for 30 megapixels. If you're like me, 60 megapixels, because we love that. Yeah. So we have the great images. So now how do we get those great images on our display? The first thing you have to do with calibration is you have to realize that it's not about your monitor. It's about the camera you have to calibrate, you have to calibrate your monitor, and you have to calibrate your output device. So when we're shooting, we're using something called a color checker. So that's a very simple device. I use it from Calibrite. You hold it in front of your model, you make sure that the, all the gels are off. So you're using normal lighting, so no colored lights, and you shoot it on the setting where you're gonna use it, if you're really picky. Because if you change the setting, the color temperature on especially cheaper strobes will change. You use that color checker, and then you start turning on all the gels and everything. From the color checker, you make a profile. So we're done with the camera, that's done. Now, of course, we also see that image on our monitor. And we have to make sure that the red is red, green is green. Now, there are certain tables and they're called sRGB, Adobe RGB, Profoto RGB, and those are so-called color spaces. Now, our monitor is not really Adobe RGB. It's like 98%, 99% Adobe RGB. So what you do is you place a device in front of your uh, monitor and your software starts sending out images, red, green, blue, cyan, magenta, yellow on 100%, 75%, 50%, 25%. And it meters all those values. Now, when we look at colors, there are only three coordinates, an X, a Y, and a big Y. U, saturation, luminance. We all know that in Photoshop and Lightroom, HSL, U, saturation, luminance. What they actually mean are the coordinates of those colors within a color space. And those are determined. So when you calibrate your monitor, you type in the color space you want to use or native. With BenQ monitors, we always do native because they are a little bit more wider on certain colors and native just gives you a way better result. 
So now that we understand that those colors are metered and they have three coordinates, it's very easy to understand that if those colors are not 100% correct, we create a profile in which we actually set red plus one minus one plus three. Means you don't show it correctly, but if you do it like this, you, you change the X, the Y, and the other Y, you come very close. Remember, it's never 100%. It's always as close as possible. It's never 100%. So those profiles are called DCP profiles for Adobe or ICC profiles for everything else. So now we have the camera done. We have a profile for the camera. We have a profile for the monitor. So now what the heck do we do with it? We do absolutely nothing with it. We just keep it there and we remember it. So every time we take a picture with that lighting setup, you go into Lightroom, you pick the profile you created for your camera and you start retouching. At that point, you can also use the gels and you can use whatever you want because the base photo is correct. Now, when you look at the monitor, everything looks correct on the monitor. And now where it goes wrong, and it goes really wrong a lot, like 90% of the cases, people open up Photoshop, color management. Oh, let's see, BenQ monitor profile, that, uh, that's no. That's called double color management. That goes wrong all the time. You are correcting files. You're not creating color spaces. You are correcting to fit in a color space. Camera raw, as close as possible to camera raw. Your monitor profile, as close as possible to what your monitor can preview. So when you open up a photo in Photoshop, you forget about all those profiles and you work in a divine color space. My advice on an Adobe RGB monitor, work in Adobe RGB. On a Dream uh, color monitor, work in Adobe RGB. Although they claim they can do Profoto RGB, they are losing a lot of light in one area. So always Adobe RGB. When you use a laptop, and you have proper calibration on your laptop. And this is the cool thing. If you calibrate your camera and you calibrate your screen, you can literally work on an sRGB monitor in an Adobe RGB color space and all the calculations will be done correctly by the software. The closer you get, the better. Now, when you notice XYY luminance, I hope a lot of people now also understand why it's important to use a color meter, uh, sorry, a light meter. The light meter gives you the exposure on your model. Now, if you know that all colors have three coordinates, U and saturation are not influenced by a, column, uh, by a light meter. For the very simple reason, they're only the U and the saturation. But is that really so? Because if you change the luminance of a color, and you guys can change this in Photoshop, just try it out. Make a square or a rectangle or round, whatever you want. Fill it with medium red. Now, go to your levels and curves. And especially levels, you can see it very well, but let's start with curves because that's a little bit easier to do. Just pick it in the middle and just pull it down. You will see the color getting darker, but for your mind, the color also gets more saturated. Now turn it up and the color becomes less saturated. Now remember that all those colors have different gamma curves. They, they perform differently. They have the same gamma curve, but they perform differently. So let's say you create all those profiles with an image that's one stop underexposed because you're too stupid to use a light meter. Sorry, I'm not bent it really harsh, but you know what I mean, right? So light meters are, it's junk. We don't need it. It's more than time we can do it in Photoshop. So now you underexpose your images by one stop. You create all the correct profiles. You go into Photoshop and you go like, ooh, or Lightroom. Ooh, let's change the exposure up. At that point, all your calibrations are done because you're changing the luminance of a color and the weird thing is the luminance also changes the saturation and the hue. They're always connected. It's always like a puppet with three strings. So if you change one, all the others will shift. Change this one 10%, that one will go 5%, that one will go 6%.
So using a light meter and a calibration device will give you a proper workflow that works like a charm. So back to your question, because now I can answer the question. What is a tip for people who will calibrate a monitor? With all this knowledge, there are a few things you have to remember. Our color space is D65. That's a white point chosen on the black body curve. That's a little bit reddish white, but that's how we calibrate. So that's the first part. In some software, it's called D65. In some software, it's called 65K. And in some software, it's called 6500. But it's all the same thing. It's 6500 degrees Kelvin. There are some people that say you should calibrate on 54. Let me put it this way. If you know why to calibrate on 54, that's the only reason you should. If you are in doubt, don't calibrate on 54 because that's only for offset presses. 6,500 degrees Kelvin. A gamma curve of about 2.2, 2.4. If you do a lot of video, I advise 2.4. If you mainly do photography, 2.2 is fine. If you really are into video, you can do an EOTF curve of 1886, but that's not the really found in normal consumer software. So keep it at 2.2. And then the light output, that's the biggest problem. The difference between, for example, a BenQ monitor for photography and a BenQ monitor for gaming is that the gaming monitor will have way more light output. The photography monitors, when you look at it in a store, a lot of people won't choose a photography monitor because they're really dim. They don't reflect light. They're really dim. They don't have that nice glossy, which we hate look. They just look dull. Those are the monitors you need. Because in the digital system, we only have 254 steps in dynamic range. So if you have a monitor with a lot of light output, for our photography, we have to lower that to about 120, 140 nits in output. That mimics a little bit like a digital billboard or print on the proper lighting. If you have a gaming monitor, you probably have like 250 nits, 400 nits output. Now, the dynamic range of a monitor, you can't influence on the black part and the white part. It clips or it doesn't show any detail. So if you have a monitor that's really high up in light output and you lower that, you're actually lowering this and maybe a little bit in the blacks. So a gaming monitor for photography will have poor blacks and a crossed dynamic range for the very simple reason it's not designed for that. If you buy a proper monitor for video and for photography, they are dimmer. The reason is very simple. You can lower the light output down and the blacks will stay perfectly black. So that's also why you see a lot of photographers actually choosing monitors by just projecting a black square. How black is the black? If the black is really high up, it's probably a gaming monitor. If it's really low, that's a great monitor to show shadow details. It's one of the biggest caves I actually found with those drawing tablets. Uh, I'm using XP Pen and in the past Wacom. And XP Pen, in my opinion, by the way, is way cheaper and gets you way better quality. But that's my personal opinion. And those drawing tablets are awesome. But look at very closely. Wacom has the problem. XP Pen has the problem. Hyundai has the problem. They emit a lot of light, but they don't show any shadow detail. So I always, when I retouch, I have this, um, I have it here. I can show you. Oh, sorry. So I have this one here. This is a smaller one. Uh -huh. uh, we have a bigger one in the studio. They're awesome. But they also emit more light than my monitor. And that means that I always have a BenQ monitor or any reference monitor connected to my laptop while I'm retouching. So I'm always doing this. I'm retouching. And then as soon as I start doing anything with curves, I'm actually doing my curves like this. I do my color grading like this. Oh, I need to take a hair out. And then I go here again. Now the hair is gone. Okay, now I'm going to change the color and I'm going to look there again. Sometimes even when I'm doing demos, I literally have to drag my 
um, how do you call it, the curves back to my drawing tablet because they're always on the BenQ monitor because that's where I do the critical work and the retouching I do in the tablet. So setting up 110, 120 nits, 6,500 degrees Kelvin and a gamma between 2.2 and 2.4. And the most important thing is when you do the calibration, sometimes you get a choice between version 2 and version 4. Now, a lot of people will think version 4 is better because it's newer and it has more options. That's 100% true, except what a lot of people don't realize is that color management within Adobe Photoshop and Lightroom works slightly different. And when you use a version 2 and you open up something from Lightroom into Photoshop, it looks exactly the same. When you use a version 4, it can happen a lot that it looks right in Photoshop. You go back to Lightroom and it looks weird. Or you go from Lightroom to Photoshop and it looks weird. And even worse, I use Exposure and uh, Luminar. And when you do a version 4, I often found that when I go into Exposure, I have my perfect film look. I go back into Photoshop and there's already a difference. I go back to Lightroom and there's even a huge difference. And I go like, how the heck could I do this? It looks weird. And I had the same workflow like four or five times. I was going like, I don't get it. Is there something wrong with my eyes? And then I just realized, like, how the heck does the software is set up? So I went back into the calibration and then somewhere hidden in an advanced page, version 4. And was going like, ah, oh, crap. So I put it on version 2 and from there on, everything just looks fine. So if you have that problem on your monitor, make sure you select version 2. I think that's about it. It's not very complicated, but it needs a lot of background information to understand what's going on. Same with lighting. The, the whole color management system, it's, it, it's actually, when you boil it down, it's incredibly simple, but it's overcomplicated by people. You just have to realize that you do a color calibration for every single device. So color checker for your camera, that's the profile you use in Lightroom. Then you do the color profile for your monitor, that's the ICC profile. You set it up in your operating system and you work in a color space. And that's what you set up in Adobe. In Adobe, you should never use the color space of your monitor. You should never use the color space of your camera. They're separate devices. You calibrate them all. And then finally, when you go to print, in all honesty, we have a studio set. So that means that we can, uh, with a spectrometer, we can literally read what the printer does. We hardly use it. Uh, most of the prints we do are for clients that just want to print fast or help portraits where we, we, we don't do a lot of prints. So what I advise people to do with prints, get the paper from the manufacturer, like Epson glossy paper, that's awesome, or a semi-gloss we use from Epson, I believe that's between glossy and matte, it's absolutely awesome. And just download the profile from the Epson website and make sure that you always use original inks. As soon as you start doing different paper, different inks, you really have to buy a spectrometer to get them all fit in. Or you can never do it manually. There are way too many settings and you can get something that's close for one image. You print out the next one and it looks totally weird. So it's always a balance. I remember a story when I did all the calibrations, of course, for the ISF, we did a lot of the TVs at people. We still do that at people's home. We calibrate tele television sets. And I remember that when the matrix came out, I was incredibly busy with calibrating TV sets. And I was just wondering why the heck, what, what changed? A lot of the people I visited said, oh, my image looks totally like crap, Frank, please help me. I don't know what I did wrong. I said, what did you try? He said, well, the matrix is, oh, forget about it. Yeah, I know what you did. He said, what did I do? The story is very simple. In the matrix, there's this very subtle green glow in the images when they're inside the matrix. Now, in the first movie, it's all almost green. Now, because the matrix was a blockbuster and everybody said the matrix has this beautiful image quality and tinting, 
a lot of people saw it on their TVs. They said, now we have the perfect movie to adjust the colors of our TV set. What they didn't realize is color evokes emotion. We never as photographers or creators of movies just dump something online without color tinting. So we use a color checker, we use a light meter to get everything perfect. And then we're going to destroy everything with our film looks and our presets. But if you calibrate your monitor on something that has too much green, all those TVs I visited, they saw like whoop green. <laughs> so you had red, green, and blue. And I was going like, why did you do it? And I said, yeah, but it looks great on that movie. And then when I'm done, they looked at the matrix and go like, Frank, the whole image is green. Yep. And now put in um, Save It Private Ryan. Do you see that everything is now black and white? Yeah, it doesn't look blue anymore. Yeah, that's because you now have the proper green ingredient. But black and white, yep, yeah, it's made out of red, green, and blue. That's what a lot of people don't realize. So when you look at your monitor and you put on a grayscale, the grayscale should be black and white and gray all the way from the bottom to the top. There should be no color infections there. If you try to calibrate something by eye, <laughs> you will get the center right, you will get the top right, but in the back, ooh, there will be a lot of blue or there will be a lot of red. Or if you do it on the shadow parts, the whites won't work. So never do it with your eyes. Your eyes can determine 1% difference, but when you set it up, it's a 25% difference, 25%. So you can never set it up manually. Never. Always use a calibrated tool. You know, there's a really interesting uh, thing you touched upon, which which is workflow. And I know from when we spoke last time, which arguably is like uh, quite some time ago, back in the pandemic, I think, yeah. um, you had just switched to um, retouching on your iPad. I remember. Yeah, you... on Wednesday, we have a whole digital classroom dedicated to that because I finally nailed it. I now have the perfect... Apple is still not really cooperating with some things, <laughs> right. but we think we nailed the perfect workflow at the moment with iPads. So that's that's really interesting uh, to me personally, but I'm sure also to many people listening, um, because I'm actually thinking of integrating an iPad into my sort of workflow. Now, why I'm interested in it is to... Um, is to hear what, what your kind of workflow looks like when it comes to retouching on iPad. At the moment, very, very simple. Um, in the studio, we shoot to an iPad Pro uh, with cable, with cable. So we are now able to use USB. That was for me the main issue with shooting to an iPad. I don't want to shoot wireless because it just sucks on location. It just doesn't work. So I want to make sure that I shoot with a uh, USB cable. And cable works really, really fast. Uh, you also now have Capture One but then you will pay a lot of money for it. It's a subscription-based, and Cascable is just a one-time uh, investment. As soon as I have it on my iPad, I go home, and then I rename all the images with batch rename from um, uh, File Browser Pro, because Apple still doesn't support batch renaming, which in my... It's insane that they don't support it on a Pro device, but anyway, never mind. That's Apple. And then comes the cool part. I upload everything to Lightroom, and because Lightroom is, of course, cloud-based, I take my laptop, connect it to our BenQ monitor and our drawing tablet, and I can just start retouching in the studio or in the place where I'm now. This is at home, but we also have a drawing tablet here. So now I have proper color management. I can do everything. Now, of course, that's a hybrid workflow. If I'm on location, I do it slightly different. Then I don't have that calibrated monitor with me. But because, of course, I know that my laptop is calibrated, I now use something called Sidecart from Apple, and that's a game changer. That was for me the reason that I say to a lot of people, Windows is great, I love Microsoft, but Apple at this moment for creators is the only choice with the one M, uh, M1 chips 
And Sidecar is really different. What Sidecar makes possible is that you place your iPad close to your laptop and you just move your pointer towards the side and it will literally move that point towards your iPad. So you can now copy files without AirDrop from your iPad to your laptop. But that's not all. You can also set it up for screen sharing. And now you can use the Apple Pencil and the iPad in Photoshop. So think about this. You have Photoshop running on your laptop, on power, on the desk, or whatever you want in a hotel room. And you can sit 10 meters away from it. You can even walk to the restroom if you want with your Apple Pencil. Don't even visualize that. And just <laughs> on your iPad, just keep retouching because you are literally doing everything on the computer. Now, the nice thing about, for example, software like AstroPad and, of course, Apple himself, is that you can have a floating bar with your hotkeys. I'm still looking for a small device that will work on an iPad or on the laptop, of course, where you have the keys and you can just click it on your iPad. I think the one that will invent something like that will be a multimillionaire. It's just a very simple device with, for example, eight buttons. Just click it on your iPad Pro and now you have hard keys where you can do control, shift, uh, command and whatever not you need. And I think that's, that, that would finish the workshop to total perfection. But the, the fact now that you can work on your iPad, on your phone, uh, with Sidecard, you can use your uh, iPad as a second screen. You can drop images or you can retouch on it and then still use that BenQ monitor or any other calibrated monitor for the proper color. Yeah, we now have a workflow that's totally fluent between being on location. And now I use the monitors only to check. So I do all my retouching and then before we upload it, we just connect the iPad to a monitor that's hardware calibrated. That's the main advantage of hardware calibration. And at that point, we don't need software to calibrate that monitor. We just use the internal calibration and we can judge our images and you're done. If you have a monitor that has software calibration, you always need your computer in between when that's where the profile is running. Otherwise, the monitor don't show you the right colors. And don't believe those monitors that are calibrated in factory. That's BS. They just check if it's all right because everything you connect will have a different output and also everything will deteriorate over time. So maybe in the factory, it was great. As soon as you're home, it already deteriorated a little bit. And after a month, you already need to calibrate it again. So always do it yourself. How do you shoot uh, directly to your iPad? Uh, I'm using IQ wires and uh, that's 10 meters. So we have two boosters inside and it goes really fast in raw files. And as software, we're using Cascable. It's very expensive. It's about 86 euros, uh, sorry, 68 euros. And you can buy, and I don't agree with that. I'm not affiliated by them. I tried and they ignore me. So whatever, I'm still promoting it because I love it. But I'm not affiliated by them. The mistake they make, I think, is the free version can't tether at all. So why a free version? Then if you pay five euros, you can test it out for a week, which I think is insane. Make that in the free version. You can tether for a week. If it doesn't work, it will just lock down. And then if you pay 68 euros, your camera uh, will support, of course, uh, for the whole duration. So the, the software itself works like a charm, but it's very simple. You keep the, you get the images in and you can choose between uh, what we do in the studio. We have the iPad uh, and we have a big monitor. And you can actually say when I'm teaching workshops, I'm actually doing a mirror. So they can literally see Cascable on the big monitor. So see the film roll and see the images. When I'm teaching uh, for big crowds, I'm using it as a second monitor. So now I can see the film roll and the people only see the picture. So nothing in the sides. So we're not making any commercial stuff for sometimes organizers are really 
picky about what you shoot with. Are you shooting with Lightroom? Yeah, okay, that's okay. Are you shooting with other software? Yeah, they're not on the booth, so yeah, you can't really use that software. It's like, I'm a photographer, it's my workflow. You can't prohibit me from using software. And I think that's the nice thing about Cascable. You can just project it on a big screen with only the image, full size. And then on the iPad, I can still see what I'm doing. Fantastic. If, if you, um, what's the experience with like wireless transmission to the, it to the sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it always works in the studio. It always works in your bedroom. It always works when you don't need it. And for JPEG, it works great. But as soon as you go on location, I've had it in uh, South Africa. I was standing literally next to my computer. Sometimes it, it went in like a second. And at one point people said, hey, Frank, the images don't come in yet. And I was just looking at it going like, oh, that's weird. And then boom, I shot that like 20 seconds ago. And then boom, 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 boom. And they were all coming in. I was going like, this is unworkable. And we had a lot of problems with, for example, if we had to do demos in a cellar, uh, a lot of problems on trade shows where there's a lot of Wi-Fi traffic. And in the end, I just pulled it off and I said, you know what, I'm I'm going to wait until there's a wired solution. So I didn't shoot for, I think, a year to an iPad for the very simple reason. I was so fed up with wireless. And then Cascable came out with an update that they also supported the Sony cameras. I tested it out for five euros, of course. <laughs> it worked and then I bought the license. And uh, that's... Up until now, I only use Cascable on the iPad to shoot tethered. It's amazing. Yeah, shooting to iPad, this is really something I'm interested in. Um, I mean, oh, for, yeah. for a number of reasons. First of all, of course, on location work, absolutely 100%. You know, if right it's, screen? Yeah, if it's, if it saves me having to take all sorts of other crap with me, then great. Especially... And, and, and you know, the cool thing about the IQ wire cables is that we also support charging on the iPad Pro from your camera. So if I'm on location, I turn the charging off. Because on location, I, of course, need my iPad Pro. And the cool thing is my laptop, the M1, will run almost a full day, but not fully on a battery. It will be about 80% or so. My iPad Pro, I can shoot the whole day outside with the, with the screen on the brightest setting. And I'm not going to say to you I have 60% left at the end of the day, but I still have 10, 20% left at the end of the day. So that means that I don't have to worry about my battery. We have a nice uh, Ulanzi holder. I'm going to show that Wednesday in Digital Classroom 2. It holds the iPad Pro very, very secure on the stand. And it's like 39 euros. And you can shake it and it... Camera shake podcast, right? And you see the joke. You can shake it and your iPad doesn't fall off. I never found a solution where I could so securely secure my laptop. And so when you change locations, nowadays, just pick up the stand, put it over your shoulder. The iPad won't fall out. You just walk to the next location, you put it down and you shoot. With the laptop, put down the visor, take out the cable, take out the laptop, take this, you know, it's way more work. And uh, when I'm shooting in the studio, we're actually using, let me see if I have one here. No, I don't. But uh, you know those, uh, those USB connectors, right? You have one USB-C cable and then you have a little uh, dock. And on the dock, you have USB-A, USB-C, USB-C for charging and uh, HDMI. So when I'm in the studio, we just put the laptop or the iPad next to the monitor. We plug in that dock and then it charges the iPad. And it charges my camera because the IQ wire cable also supports charging over the lower end devices. So during the photo shoots in the studio, I go in with empty batteries and I end the day with full batteries. So that's a big plus. And I think that's the modern day photographer just have different demands on their gear. Like when I started out, my tethering cables, it was more than enough if it was five meters 
And if it worked, I was happy. Nowadays, we look at totally different things. I want flexible cables. I don't want stiff cables. I want flexible cables. I want high visibility cables, so red. I want boosters in there, so I'm sure that even 60 megapixels... Remember, we're not shooting with 16 megapixels anymore. We're shooting with freaking 60 megapixels in RAW. Those files are 10 times bigger than what we started with 10 years ago. So we need cables that can support that. Also, the software is getting more and more complicated. So what we have with IQ Wire is that we have IntelliConnect. So that means that if we connect it, there's immediately a conversation between the cable and the computer. The cable says, how fast can you go? I can go this fast. Okay, remember that. Then it asks the camera, how fast can you go? I can go this fast. And it will lock those two speeds. So that's why with other cables, you sometimes drop your connection in mid-shoot and you go like, what the heck's going on? And the, the going coincidence is, oh, just stop triggering, uh, stop tethering and start again. Nobody knows why. We found out why. Because there is no communication for a while between the cable and the camera and it just goes into power saving mode. With IntelliConnect, they constantly keep that connection open. So although it looks like a normal cable, there's a lot of techniques in there. And I also didn't know about that two years ago. And the moment I found that out, I was going like, this is really smart. I want to test it out. And this year, 2022, at the start of the year, we actually started experimenting with IQ wires. And we are now the distributor for Europe for IQ wires because it's just, it works like a charm. And they have 10 meters. So for the mobile workflow, 10 meters is awesome. And the reason is again, very simple. If you have a 4.7 meter cable, think about this, I'm two meters high. My camera is here. So I have two meters going down. My laptop is one meters 50 high. So I also have one meter 50 up. So two meters plus that, that's already, well, three and a half meters, right? So I only can stand 1.7 meters away from my laptop. And if I'm further away, the cable will go up. And the chance of somebody hitting that cable and dropping my laptop on the floor or dropping my camera on the floor, exponential gets higher the more you get away from your laptop. Now, if you have a 10 meter cable, two meters, one meters 50, no problem at all. I can still move six meters away and the cable will stay on the floor. So that's something that at the past, again, the, the demands were very, very little because we were just happy that it worked. I think nowadays it's more important with high resolution cameras, more stability that we need something that's intelligent and that's not just a cable that you plug in. They're more expensive, but hey, I never had a drop shot since I'm using them. And I think that's a big plus because that's the most frustrating part. If you're shooting and you take the killer shot, you go like, why doesn't it come in? Well, it's saved on the card, right? Yeah. yeah if you have a Sony, yes. If you're shooting with another brand and you're shooting tethered, often it doesn't record on the card. So you lost that image. Yeah. The cable becomes a lifesaver. Yeah, absolutely. Nikon doesn't save on the card, which is highly, yeah. highly annoying. Um, yeah, that's, that's always annoying me about, about Nikon. Anyway, Frank, it's been an absolute education. Thank you, Thank you. so much for uh, joining us again on the Camera Shake podcast. Um, again, you know, no matter whether you're into uh, or whether we want to, you want to learn about lighting, uh, color correction, um, any of those things, this is an excellent episode for you. Um, just quickly, you've got some workshops coming up uh, that you mentioned. What's happening? Yeah, we have Wednesday. We have another digital classroom, so that will probably be after this uh, release. <laughs> but every month we do a live stream in our studio. It uh, varies between 45 minutes and two hours plus even sometimes. And we vary it between uh, a model shoot or something more technical. Like this Wednesday, it's going to be the digital workflow. And 
of course, every Saturday we do the workshop in our studio. So people can just go online, check our social media. We're very active. And recently we started with, uh, especially for BenQ with shorts. I hate it. I literally, with a passion, I freaking hate shorts, but it's also interesting. And I don't hate the shorts by, by itself because it's a one minute video you have to create. And I think it really makes it really, really your creative juices starts flowing because in one minute telling a story, that's very, very difficult if you want to do it right. The thing I hate with passion and I'm literally ashamed when I do it in public. <laughs> shooting with the phone. Oh my God. Now I'm shooting with my phone a lot. The phone actually gives me better quality than the Osmo Pocket, which we're going to sell because the phone is better. No, it's this. I'm literally afraid that somebody one time will come up to me and say, Sir, you know that video is supposed to be like this. And I go like, I'm a professional photographer. I do video for my living. I know, but I have to do it for sure. Well, that's, that's <laughs> the thing. Go like, it's insane. Why didn't they do shorts like this? And that's the same with Instagram. Did, did you know that Instagram wants to go to 9 by 16 so full screen? Now, tell me this. Most photos we take are great in landscape mode because our eyes are landscape mode, right? Our video is landscape mode. Everything we see is landscape mode. Nothing is portrait mode. So why the heck do you support 9 by 16 but now remember this when i upload a video on instagram that is landscape i can just press that little button and it will create it nicely full screen with black bars on top and bottom when i upload not even 9 by 16 but even less white i upload it in portrait i can press that button what i want but it always cuts off the top and the bottom how the hell do you want photographers to go to 9 by 16 if you can't even upload photos in that format and this is where social media, I think, gets a little bit more into, we don't care about the creators anymore. We just want to do what the consumer does. And the consumer is very simple. This is video. No, this is video. No, no, this is video. Because social media also tells it. Oh, you have a nice dog. <laughs> yeah. So I hate that about shorts, but for people, just check out our YouTube channel. We try to make it interesting with tips and behind the scenes. We also did one about today, about um, doing my interview with you. Which actually reminds me that I still have to do one more video while I'm talking to you. <laughs> Welcome to the Camera Take Podcast. In today's episode, we'll feature Frank Dorhoff. 